Good morning. My name is Tommy Allen, and I'm the lead pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. Welcome to our online ministry. This morning, we're going to be looking at the third in our series on the Bible, and we are using as a template or an outline the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have one of those and you want to follow along, you can find that at Amazon. We can place a link in the comments, something like that. But before we jumped into the third sermon called The Terrible Lie, uh, I thought we would confess our sins this morning. Each week we had a different element of worship, and I thought, given the fact that we're going to be talking about sin quite a bit this morning, that it would be nice to start out with a confession of sin. You can find that below, and so I'd ask you if you want to pray along with me, that's fine. If you just want to listen quietly, that's fine as well. So let us confess our sins. Father God, you are the one who leads us from darkness into light, from captivity into freedom, from anxiety into peace, from despair into joy. Yet we long to break free, choosing independence, convinced of our own wisdom, forgetting your love and grace. Forgive us, draw close to us, embrace us once again in your loving arms, and enable us to follow you in worship and grateful service each day of our lives. Amen. So if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive them. And he takes them and casts them as far as the east is from the west and as high as the heavens are above the earth. And so it's my privilege to say to you as a minister of the gospel, know that your sins are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. So this morning um, is a huge chapter in the whole Bible. You know, John Calvin said, that the Bible ought to be preached in thirds. And by that, he meant the Bible ought to be preached. We ought to preach the third chapter of John, which says you must be born again. We must preach the third chapter of Romans, which says that we must be justified by faith alone in the work of Christ. And we must preach Genesis chapter 3, because that's the reason we needed John chapter 3 and Romans chapter 3. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. I mean, historically, it's known as the fall or the fall of man or the fall of humanity or the felix culpa, even uh, they would call it in Latin. So with all of that said, I thought I would start with a question as I often do. And so the question is this, if you're familiar at all with the story of Adam and Eve, right, they're placed in the garden, they're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and ultimately they fail, right? I think most people, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that story, or at least some version of that story. And so the question for you is, if you were in the garden instead of them, do you think you would have fared better than them? In other words, if you say, you know, I'm independent, I like to stand on my own two feet, put me in the garden, let me try. If you were put in the garden, how do you think you would have fared? Do you think you would have done any better than them? Do you think you would have avoided sinning? I don't think so. You see, the fact is Adam and Eve were, were holy and happy with God. That's what the children's catechism says. In fact, if you remember, just by way of background, Genesis chapter 1, we looked at last week, was all about God intervening into the the chaos of creation and then bringing order unto rest. And then you get into chapter 2, and he he talks about the creation of humanity. Now, in chapter 1, toward the end, it says, let us create man in our own image. In our own image, let us create him. And then in chapter 2, there's another creation story of humanity. And people say, oh, there's two different versions. Really, there's not. There's two different uh, perspectives on one thing. You see, in chapter 1, when it talks about the creation of humanity, it's all about dignity. 
It's all about the fact that, that every human being is created in the image of God. Whether you're black or white or, or Asian, whoever you are, you're created in the image of God. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And just for that very purpose alone, we have great dignity. Chapter 2 is more about creation of humanity, but it's more about humility because we're created out of dirt. And ultimately, we, we're gonna, we fall. And so in chapter two, what you see is, is Adam and Eve that, you know, God brings the animals to, to Adam and he names them. And it says there wasn't found a helper suitable for him. And then God puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib from Adam and he creates Eve. And he wakes up and he's like, hi, yay, yay. <laughs> he's like, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so it ends, chapter two ends with this line. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. So, so after the creation, after God uh, makes Eve and after Adam, sort of they have these wedding vows, right? You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the last part says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And it says they were naked and not ashamed. That's important. Because if you if you think about it, if you distinguish what's the what is shame all about, you see we tend to talk about guilt and shame, and we tend to use them as synonyms. But guilt is what you you feel. At least one aspect of guilt is something that you feel. But shame has more to do with hiding. In other words, you know that you are ashamed of something if you don't want other people to see it. And so Adam and Eve are naked and they're unashamed. They're, they don't care what it, they see. They, they, they don't care if they see each other. They don't care if God sees everything about them. And so that's important to keep in mind before all this broke loose, they were naked and they were unashamed because how it ends up with them being clothed and ashamed, right? So as we consider chapter three, where all of this changes, where all this goodness happened. Remember, God pronounced that this is shalom, the way it's supposed to be. The creation is in order. Man is in proper relationship with God. He's in proper relationship with creation. And he's in proper creation with relationship with each other. And so then chapter three happens. Ah, right. So we're going to look at three things in chapter three. We're going to look at the nature of sin. We're going to look at the fallout of the fall. And finally, we're going to look at the promise of the gospel. So what is the nature of sin? I have a lot of things here that we can glean from this text. Let me read to you the first seven verses of chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any tree, any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was a desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let me pray for us as I jump into this. Father, I pray that as we begin to consider this text, that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would convict us of sin as we talk about sin, but I also pray that you would convict us of mercy and grace. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So the nature of sin. First thing I want you to just talk about is the serpent, right? 
It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, people argue and debate, was this actually a serpent? Was it a snake? Was it something else? Was it literal? Was it figurative? Now, one thing to keep in mind is in the cultures of the ancient Near East, serpents were, were venerated as idols. And so it could could be figurative. I think the best thing to do for the purposes of this of, of keeping the story intact is to go with what the Jesus story book Bible says, which is basically Satan disguised himself as a snake. Now, the fact that he was talking and the fact that Eve like didn't find that odd from our worldview, that's odd. But maybe from Eve's worldview, a talking animal wasn't. Remember, the, the whole Chronicles of Narnia are full of talking animals. Who knows? Right here, though, we have this serpent who approaches Eve. And so the first nature of sin um, that we see is that sin distorts the command of God. That's the first thing that, that we see in this text. What do I mean by that? Basically, this the, notice the command that Adam and Eve were given is in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day of that, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now notice how big the, the command was, or how, how broad or how open it was. God said that you may eat of every tree in the garden, including the tree of life, except that one right there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one, because on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God's, God's the, the command he gave was actually very limited. And how does the serpent distort this command? He says to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if, if Eve was, was smart, I don't know if she was smart or not, but she, if it was me, I would hope I would have said, no, nah, he said we could eat of everything, just not that one. But the first thing sin does is it begins to distort the command of God. The second thing that sin does is it not only distorts God's commands, but it also tends to add on to God's commands. Right? We tend to think if you're obedient, good. If you're more obedient, better. Not necessarily true. Right? Notice what Eve says in her response. It says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Okay, so she says the right thing, but... God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, good so far, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what did Eve do there? What was the command? The command was, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And Eve says, you shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, or you'll die. Now, what has Eve done there? Eve has basically shown herself to be the second Pharisee who ever lived. Right? What does a Pharisee do? A Pharisee, in Jesus' day, a Pharisee was a religious person who knew the law, and just to make sure that they didn't disobey the law, they would draw another circle around it. Right? So if you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, then they would say you shouldn't even walk on the Sabbath. If you're not supposed to do uh, this or that thing, let's draw a big circle around it so we don't disobey the, the thing in the middle of the circle by staying way outside. And so Eve says, um, not only are we not supposed to eat of it, we're not even supposed to touch it. Right? Because, of course, you'd have to touch it in order to eat it. So if you draw that fence, but adding to God's commands is just as sinful as disobeying. God's commands. And so Eve has added to the command. Now notice I called Eve the second Pharisee. 
My guess is that Adam is the first Pharisee. Because back when this command was given in chapter 2, Eve wasn't even created yet. Eve wasn't around when God told Adam, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day you eat of it, you shall not die. Now imagine God creates Adam and Eve, and now Eve is there, and we don't know how much time elapsed, right? How much time they spent in the garden before this, this happened. But imagine Eve, his, this new creation, his new wife, and he's showing her around the garden, and he said, oh, you can eat that, you can eat that, you can eat that. God said, you can eat that. And then he gets to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he looks at her and says, you know this thing here? Don't even touch it. Just stay away from it. Don't go near it. And so instead of just telling her the law and letting her obey it, he, he draws a fence around it. And so Eve makes a fence around it. As soon as you start drawing fences around the law, you actually begin to lose perspective of what the actual law was. And so sin not only distorts the law, but it also sort of adds on to the law. And Eve has added on to the law. And not only does, does sin distort, and not only does sin add to the law of sometimes, but sin by its almost by its nature denies the truth and makes false promises, right? Notice in verse uh, four and five, it says, but the serpent said, you to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So God says, eat, on the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now, he didn't determine whether that was just you're going to drop over physical or that means you're going to die eventually or that means spiritual death. People have interpreted that in lots of different ways. But did you notice what the serpent said? He just completely reversed it and denied the truth. Right. So the truth is when you you sin, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you die one way or the other. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. He doesn't even ask her. He just tells her that's not true. What God said is not true. In fact, there is benefit from it. There is false promise to this, that if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now think of this. Did, did Eve and Adam actually think that they were going to be like God? Right, God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being wisdom, holiness, goodness, and truth, and they were created out of dirt a couple days ago. And yet... The promise that the serpent gave, the false promise that sin gives, is that this is actually going to be a good thing. That if you transgress God's commands, that'll be a good thing. And we do that all the time in our lives. I do, right? That, that whether you, you think of, you think in terms of things that are sexual or what you look at or the way you behave toward people, that eventually it comes back to you. That, that the false promise that, that somehow sin is going to satisfy you um, never works. At least it hasn't in my life. So what's the next thing we see is that sin not only uh, distorts and it adds to God's command, not as you deny the truth, but sin entices and it rationalizes. Notice what Eve did in verse 6. It says, so that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, I preached this, the book of Genesis about 20 years ago, and I think I had six sermons just in this little area here. So there's a lot here. For example, the fact that... Um, a lot of people make the case that Adam was actually there the whole time. 
that Adam should have intervened on behalf of his wife. He should have told this serpent the truth. In fact, Adam was the first guardian of Eden. He should have actually crushed the head of this serpent who was talking to his wife. He didn't do it. What does Eve do? This sin entices and, and she rationalizes why this is okay. And did you notice how she did? She said first, the, the, she looked at the fruit. She saw that it was good for food. Okay, so it's nutritious. It's good eating. The second thing she said, it was a delight to the eyes. It looks good. And the third thing she says, and it can make me wise. What's not to like about that? And so she rationalizes all the good things that she's going to get from this sin, from eating this fruit, but she doesn't really think through all the bad things that could happen, like death. But that leads to the next thing, the last thing that I'm going to talk about here is she she looked at it and said it's good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, it makes one wise. And the final thing that we learn about sin here and that she learned, unfortunately, is that sin brings shame, right? They started out naked and unashamed. And by the end of these seven verses, they are not anymore. It says, look at verse seven. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I mean, do you ever think about that? Did they not know they were naked when they were actually naked? I think the point there is it didn't bother them. Like Eve didn't have any body issues and Adam wasn't worried about his gut. Whatever the whatever it is, it didn't bother them before. They could just be who they were. Now, suddenly, they were worried about the approval of other people. They were worried about the approval of each other, I guess. They were worried about the approval of God. And they didn't like what they maybe saw on themselves, and so they covered it up. That's the definition of shame. Ask yourself, what is it that you are ashamed of? And what would make you free of that shame? Could anything. You see, the, the, what they learn next is the, the consequences of the fall or the fallout of the fall. That Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden and now there are going to be consequences and they come rather quickly. So what is the fallout from the fall? Notice the first thing, verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, this is this verse is always interesting to me because it's the only place in the whole Bible where the word cool there. It says we saw we heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, where that word is translated as the word cool. Usually it's translated as the word wind, ruach, or spirit. And so let, let's read it that way and see if it changes the tenor. You see, the way it's written, the way we, the translation goes now, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? He's just walking. He's got his hands behind his back, and he's admiring things. That's the cool of the day. Now, what happens if we say, Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the spirit of the day? <laughs> Hello. You see, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, the spirit of the day is all about judgment, right? The spirit of the day is the day of the Lord, the day that he comes to punish sins. And so that makes more sense as to why they were hiding, right? They heard God come into the garden in the spirit of the day. And it says the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord from among, among the trees of the garden in verse nine. But the Lord called to the man and woman and said, where are you? Now, Again, if you translate it as cool of the day, 
you then are left with asking, okay, how does a, an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful God not know where they are? Is he just going, where are you? Is he sort of playing hide and seek with them? I think he's coming in the spirit of the day and he says, where are you? And the, what we learn about the fallout from the fall is that there is always punishment for sin. That sin is, is always judged. Sin is, is always punished. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, um, he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about the wrath of God, and he basically says, one day we will all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for what we've done. And he says, knowing this fear, we persuade men. In, in other words, one of the things that persuaded the Apostle Paul to evangelize all over the Mediterranean was the fact that there is going to be judgment for every man, woman, and child. And it will be fearful. It will be fearful um, if you have, have heard the gospel and you've rejected it, but it's also fearful if you haven't heard the gospel and God just judges you according to your own low moral standards. I mean, ask yourself this, if you were judged, not according to, to Adam and Eve's sin, not according to, to whether or not you've trusted Jesus, but just according to whether or not you have been consistent to your own moral standard, you would still fail. I would still fail. So judgment is inevitable. And so when Paul says, knowing this fear, we persuade others, what is he persuading them of? He's persuading them of, or he's trying to persuade them, that another has borne their judgment that another has borne their punishment, another named Jesus, that Jesus is the one who has come to bear their punishment. You see, sin is always punished. It's either punished uh, in you or it's punished in Jesus, but, but it is always dealt with and it is always judged because God is completely pure and completely holy and completely just, but because he's also completely merciful, he provides a mediator. So, not only does fear bring or sin, the fallout of the fall is judgment, but the second thing that fear, the, the fallout of the fall brings is fear, alienation, and shame. Look at verse 9. When God said, called to the man, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the sound of the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? So, so Adam's response to, to he has sinned and now he realizes that there's going to be fallout from the fall and he is afraid and he is alienated from God and he feels shame. Now, I, I promise you, um, most people that you run into every day, one way or the other, feel fear, alienation and shame whether they're Christians or not. If they're Christians, they shouldn't have to bear it, not if they understand the gospel. But the question is, what gives you fear? What makes you alienated? What makes you ashamed? If it's your sin, there is good news because God has made an offering for sin. He has dealt with sin. We're going to see that at the very end. The other thing I always think is funny is that sin inevitably turns us into blame shifters. And part of the fallout of the fall is we're all blame shifters. No one's responsible for anything anymore. Notice in verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Right? God knows what's happened. And he's giving Adam here actually a chance to fess up. And what does Adam do? So Adam says, the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. So Adam, Adam, what have you done? And he points at Eve. She's the one. She gave me some of that fruit to eat. And so God turns to the woman and says to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me 
the serpent deceived me. That was so, so, I mean, I know I did it, but really, this, if the serpent hadn't deceived me, I wouldn't have done it. And Adam's like, okay, yeah, I did it, but if, the, if this woman that you gave me, he blames God. This woman that you gave me, she's the one who led me to sin. If you hadn't given, me, given her to me, I wouldn't be in this predicament right now. They're completely shifting the blame away from themselves. All of us do that. I can remember when I was in high school. You know, I had a pretty hard childhood coming up. I say that pretty often. And I can remember in high school, before I was a Christian, I, was, I got in trouble I often. And oftentimes, I can remember thinking, like actively thinking, if I get caught doing this crazy thing that I'm doing, I'll just say, well, look at the childhood I have. How could you blame me? In other words, I, I was intending to blame shift if I ever got caught. Now, mind you, I did get caught a lot and eventually became a Christian, fortunately. But the fact is, is that blame shifting is just something that we all do naturally. Are you a blame shifter? Right? Do you have issues in your life and do you blame other people? I mean, honestly, our whole culture is, and in some sense, a, a, a culture of blame shifting. Everything is Trump's fault or everything is Obama's fault or everything is racist's fault or everything is this fault or everything is that fault. Here's the bottom line. If you are a man, woman, or child of any color, creed, or race, one day you will have to stand before God by yourself. And he's not going to accept the excuse, I had bad parents, or some people were mean to me at school. All those things are issues of justice that we need to deal with ultimately, but at a very existential level I'm talking about right now. Are you willing and able to take responsibility for your own sins and your own shortcomings and your own falls without blaming other people. That's a big thing. The only thing that enables us to do that, I think, is the promise of the gospel. You see, because what else, what else other fallout of the fall? I mean, if you consider it, besides these things, is also the man and the woman are both given. They're both given curses, if you will. Verse 16, it says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing In pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. The cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you are taken. For out of dust, you are out of dust and to dust you will return. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That's actually a very amazing verse because I think about this. So Eve has been said, you have pain in childbearing. Um, you're going to have a constant uh, conflicted relationship with your husband. And to Adam, he says, uh, uh, it, it's mind boggling to me. Imagine you're the one man in the world and God doesn't just say, Adam, you're, there's going to be, you're going to be in trouble because of your sin. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Every piece of creation is now polluted because of your actions. Everything that you can see, touch, as far as your eye can see, is cursed because of you. That would be almost too much to bear, I would imagine, if you were Adam. And yet his response to, to this is actually very optimistic. 
Verse 20 says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all living. In other words, somehow Adam, in the midst of the fall, in the middle midst of the curse, in the midst of bearing all this stuff, has some kind of hope and a future. So much so that, that he, he gets a name, his wife, I guess he was there first, that he names her the mother of all living, that, that she, that, that actually things are going to turn out okay in the end. Now, where's Adam getting that from? Well, Adam getting that from the promise of the gospel. You see, the promise of the gospel is in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. So when Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate, verse 14 says, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and to dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now it's interesting, God doesn't ask the serpent anything. He just dictates to him, which in ancient Near East, probably now even, it, it's a sign of humiliation. In other words, God is humiliating the serpent and showing him, putting him in this place. But also it's interesting that the very first thing God says after the fall is not the, the consequences to Adam and Eve, but he actually makes a promise to the serpent, to Satan, the evil one. I mean, the, the New Testament says that the serpent is ultimately Satan. And the promise that he makes to him is that you are going to lose and my seed is going to win. And verse 15 says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it's, it's interesting here because um, if you read the Jesus storybook Bible version of this, I, I love the way that they set this up because they tell this horrible story. You're almost in tears. And then it says in any other story, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, in any other story, this would have been the end. And it's interesting because if you're reading it, end is in really big letters and your eyes can see ahead like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And it says in any other story, this would have been the end, but not this story. In this story after the fall, instead of it just being the end and the mean God smashing out his creatures, he actually promises them through this promise to the serpent that he is going to make everything right that the seed of the woman one of her children satan is going to crush your head sure you will bruise his heel you'll harm him in the process but ultimately he will win and adam heard that apparently and he responds this is the mother of all living one of our children is actually going to to conquer the the serpent one of our children is going to make right everything that i made wrong in fact, they named Cain in the next chapter. Here he is. The first kid they had, they were like, well, let's get it. Didn't work out so well. We're not going to talk about that in the series. But nonetheless, Adam was optimistic because of the, the promise of the gospel. You can be optimistic because of the promise of the gospel. You see, what, what happened with the tree of life was what theologians call the covenant of works, where God made this covenant with Adam. Some people call it the covenant of life, the covenant of works, where basically he said, Adam, here's the deal. If you obey, you will be blessed. And if you disobey, you will be cursed. Well, he fails. And so that means he's cursed. What theologians call this, actually, the one thing they call this is the proto-evangelion, which in Latin means the first gospel. This is, this is not just a whisper of the name of Jesus. This is like a loud whisper with sort of a bullhorn 
that the one is coming, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And in this verse is the initiation of what theologians call the covenant of grace. What is the covenant of grace? The Westminster Larger Catechism asks the question, it says, how is God's grace revealed in the second covenant, the covenant of grace? And it says, it's a long answer, but I'm just going to give you the first line. It says, by freely providing to sinners a mediator. That Adam, not going to lie, you really blew it here. And you did bring a curse upon all of creation. But one of your children is going to come and he is going to bear that curse and take it away. One of your children is going to come and he is going to be so big and so powerful that that his death will actually bring forgiveness to whoever would trust in him. You see, one of their children, ultimately that child would be Jesus and God himself would come. Remember I told you the first the introduction to this, that God himself becomes the prince that comes back to seek his lost princess, the one who has completely uh, made herself unlovely and the one who has completely alienated herself. God, the prince, comes to save her. And this always makes me think of this part, the, the, the movie A Little Princess. The book, too. The book's good. 1995 movie A Little Princess. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Uh, I looked it up. It's on Tubi, which is an app for free. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it anywhere, really. But it's a little princess. And guess what it's about? Not a little princess like we would think. It's about a little girl whose, whose mother has passed away and her father is going off to war. And so she has to go into a boarding school. And during her whole time, uh, d- during her whole life up to the point of going to the border school, her father called her his little princess. And he told her, you are a little princess. Now, she wasn't like a bratty, little snotty little princess. She was a princess like we would hope princesses are. She's humble and she's kind and she is confident because she knows who she is. And she goes to this boarding school that happens to be run by the evil Miss Minchin. And Miss Minchin cannot stand Sarah because Sarah is happy and optimistic and always using her imagination and always playing games and always believes that she is her daddy's little princess and that he is going to come home and get her someday. And at some point, uh, Miss Minchin tells Sarah that her father has passed away and she's got to live in the attic and that, that life is miserable and she just needs to get it. Let me read you that dialogue. So this is basically when Sarah's, they think Sarah's father's dead, Miss Minchin says, you can't be a boarder anymore, so you can just be a maid, and you get to live in the, the attic. And they have this dialogue. And so Sarah's been up in this, she's been playing games with the girls up in the attic, and Miss Minchin comes in after ordering the girls to, to leave, and she says, Sarah, and she says, and you will perform all her chores, this other little girl, in addition to your own, without breakfast, lunch, or dinner. It's time you learn, Sarah Crew, that real life has nothing to do with your little fantasy games. It's a cruel, nasty world out there, and it's our duty to make the best of it, not to indulge in ridiculous dreams, but to be productive and useful. Do you understand what I'm saying, Sarah Crew? Yes, ma'am. Miss Minchin. Good. She turns to leave, and Sarah Crew says... But I don't believe in it. Minchin stops, turns back to Sarah, and goes, Skirt! Minchin, don't tell me you still fancy yourself a princess. <laughs> Good God, child, look around you, or better yet, look in the mirror. After a long pause, Sarah Crew, I am a princess. Miss Minchin, oh! Sarah, 
all girls are, even if they live in tiny old attics, even if they dress in rags, and even if they aren't pretty or smart or young, they're still princesses, all of us. Didn't your father ever tell you? Didn't he? That is one of the greatest lines of any movie because Miss Minchin doesn't know what to say because her father didn't tell her she was a princess. She doesn't know. Sarah is confident that she's a princess because she knows who she belongs to and she knows that her father has promised to come back and to save her. In spite of evidence to the contrary, in spite of what seems to be the case around her, she has faith in what her father has told her. And now as we consider this, this passage in the Bible and we consider the gospel, you too can have confidence in what your father has told you in spite of what it looks like around you, that you are a prince or a princess. No, no matter if you're ugly or <laughs> whatever you say, or dress in rags or aren't pretty or aren't smart, what you can be certain of is that the terrible lie that Satan told Adam and Eve is not true. That God, your father, loves you and he has moved heaven and earth to save you. And the question is whether or not you will embrace that. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray for people who are experiencing guilt and shame that you remove that from them. That because of the gospel, we no longer need to be ashamed. We no longer need to be to hide because Jesus has taken our sin and our guilt and our shame from us. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. You know, at this point, if we're meeting in person, which one day we will, um, we would uh, sing an offertory or sing a doxology, and then we would have an offertory. If you are interested in giving to the ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church, you can find the information in the comments section. If you're a member, a regular attender, we'd encourage that, of course. And finally, I thought I would end with this profession of faith from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Westminster Shorter Catechism, actually, question 21, and it asks this question. It answers sort of, you know, if Genesis 3.15 whispered who the, the, the Redeemer is coming, the Catechism answers it. It says, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is this, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Amen. In other words, there's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, do you have a relationship with him? If you'd like to have a relationship with him, please contact us. Please email me or Samuel or just hello at newhopekent.org and we will get back to you. So thank you for tuning in this week and I look forward to seeing you next week. In his grace, amen. Amen.